So our text this week will be from the book of Hebrews chapter 4. If you could please turn there now and we're going to start reading in verse 14. But before we get to that verse, I want to ask you a question. How do you feel about approaching the Lord when you know that you've been doing stuff wrong? Willfully, even. There's a song that's played from time to time on the radio that never fails to move me because it so perfectly expresses my feelings about that question. And it's called, How Can It Be? sung by Lauren Daigle. And it goes like this. I am guilty, ashamed of what I've done, what I've become. And these hands are dirty. I dare not lift them up to the Holy One. You plead my cause, you right my wrongs, you break my chains, you overcome, you gave your life to give me mine. You say that I am free. How can it be? How can it be? I've been hiding afraid, I've let you down inside, I doubt that you still love me, but in your eyes there's only grace now. You plead my cause, you right my wrongs, you break my chains, you overcome. You gave your life to give me mine, you say that I am free, how can it be, how can it be? Though I fall... You can make me new. From this death, I will rise with you. Oh, the grace reaching out for me. How can it be? How? I'm a strong, I have a strong suspicion that I'm not the only one here to find the words of the song very moving and very descriptive of how I feel. How can it be? How can it be that I can be forgiven and loved so much by God when I have wronged him so badly and when I continue to wrong him every day? How dare I even go near him? And that feeling becomes an action. I don't go near him because of my guilt and shame, sometimes for days on end. Is this good? Is this the right thing to do? Of course not. The problem is that I have not properly understood God's grace and love. I know it here, but not enough here. If I did, I would run to him no matter what I had done. But fortunately, the Lord knows that these questions and feelings are boiling around inside me, and so he has led me to this verse in Hebrews, particularly verse 16, which will be our focus today. I've found them to be a great comfort. I've also found them to be a clear change for the way that I relate to God. And I really hope and I really pray that they will do the same for you as well. But before we get to reading and dissecting that specific text, I think it will be helpful to set some background to the book as a whole. Well, first up, the book is called Hebrews. It is a letter written to them. So, what is a Hebrew? Of course, if you look in the, the uh, technical books, there's rather a complicated explanation, but simply a Hebrew is the way a foreigner would describe an Israelite. Me, Israelite, you call me Hebrew, as Tarzan said in the desert. 
Unfortunately, it hasn't been possible to work out exactly who wrote the book. It seems that uh, Paul, Apollos and Barnabas are all possible suspects. But what is certain is that the people who were intended to read it were Jews who had become Christians. Now, that's an easy thing to say, but it was a very difficult thing to do. As soon as you put your hand up for Jesus, every other Jew would immediately consider you apostate. And that means that they believe you've completely turned your back on your faith and are therefore a blemish to the Jewish nation. And to put that in a way that all Kiwis will understand, it's just like saying you support the Springboks, not the All Blacks. Imagine. Shock. Horror. Actually, to be considered apostate was really, really serious because the consequences were huge. You'd be expelled from the synagogue, your children would be booted out of school there, and you'd lose your job too. It was even possible to be thrown in jail if Steve Hansen, I mean, sorry, the high priest didn't like you. That was the official position. And naturally the social consequences were just as bad because for sure your friends and neighbours and shopkeepers, if they were Jews, well, they would want to have absolutely nothing to do with you from that point on. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the difficulties that you would have in daily life? And that's why Hebrews was written. Whoever it was who did put pen to paper back then knew exactly what was going on. They knew the enormous pressure that these Christians were under and they understood why they were going to be tempted to give up their faith in Jesus and maybe to go back to the old ways of rituals and ceremonies and sacrifices. So the book of Hebrews is about why Christ is far superior to that old system of the law and the prophets. Since he clearly is so, and I'll show you how, says the writer, hang on in there, hang on Hebrews. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand that this is just an old book to people who lived 2,000 years ago. It's true that we don't have things nearly as hard today in New Zealand as those biblical Hebrews, but the the pressure to compromise is definitely mounting. I know because I'm a white male, heterosexual, fundamentalist, Christian baby boomer, I have no opinion worth listening to at all. Everyone is hurt and offended by what I say. And so the message of the writer to the Hebrews is still fresh and true for me and you today. Since that is so, let's finally get into reading Hebrews 4, and I'll read from verse 14 through to 16 to keep the sense of what we're reading. But, as I've said, it's verse 16 we'll be focusing on today. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Like I've just said, when we read this, we have to bear in mind the historical context of this passage. Any Hebrew who read this would immediately get the picture. All of their experience of learning up to the point of their salvation about how God was to be approached in person would be like this. It wasn't ever them. 
They had a temple and a high priest whose job it was to go with great fear and trembling once a year on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies. And there he would sprinkle the blood of the sin offering on the mercy seat and offer up incense to make atonement for the sins of the whole nation. And nobody else at any time or any other place could do that. Just that. So, there is the comparison to Christ, my Hebrew friend, says the author. On the one hand, one man, once a year, really, really scared in an earthly temple for the sin of a whole nation. On the other, for you through Jesus, any person who accepts him as Lord at any time may boldly enter the very throne room of God in heaven to receive forgiveness for their own sin and to ask him for help when things are hard. There is absolutely no one interceding between you and God, no fear of being struck dead because your ephod wasn't adjusted just right. So, how do you think a person who had had the stuff about the temple and the high priest and the Day of Atonement drummed into them from an early age would receive this message? And, and remember, this wasn't just their personal identity, this was their national identity. If you looked in the mirror, you always saw a, mirror, a Hebrew looking back at you. One God, high priest, temple, etc., etc. So I'd like to think that reading this, they would be more than moderately surprised. Now, why am I going on and on about this? It's because I want you to get a sense of how big a deal this free access to God was for them and still is for us today. For Hebrews back then, the problem was sin. And the way of dealing with it was the huge mountain of the law and rituals and sacrifice. But Jesus smashed that to pieces on the cross and flung open the gates of heaven for all to go in. That's why we read in the Gospels that the veil of the temple was torn at the moment of his death. No more curtain. The Holy of Holies is empty, is open. And none of that has changed for us today. The problem is sin. And the way of dealing with it is nothing, really, because the stuff in the way all remains smashed. And those gates are still open. And yet, we often still do not deal with it. Why? Because Satan is whispering guilt and shame in our ears. We need to see that what we are reading here is not a minor thing. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could read verse 16 and say, Oh, righto, that was moderately interesting. What's in chapter 5? Jesus died so that we could say, wow, wow, and wow. He died for us to take up the promises contained in this verse. So, hopefully, if I've done my job properly, you've got it. This is a big deal. And since it is so, let's more closely investigate its terms. Let's pull this verse to pieces now. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. The first word we must look at is possibly a bit unassuming. It's the word come. Or maybe your Bible uses the the term draw near. The literal translation of the Greek is very illuminating. It's made up of two words that we would write down as facing come in English if we just put them down in the order that they appear together. And this shows us that thanks to Christ, 
the way that we can approach the throne of God is with our face towards him. Now that might not seem like a very big deal because that's how we meet people in everyday life. But when I read this, I immediately thought about Moses back then, hiding in the cleft of the rock and still having to be shielded by God's hand as God went by, just so he could see God's back. No man shall see me and live, is what Moses was told. And yet here we are, encouraged to meet him face to face. It's really an extraordinary change in the relationship, isn't it? Now, of course, we can't literally meet God like this until we die, and So what is meant to be understood here is that spiritually we can be utterly open when we come to the Lord and he will receive us in the same way. We are always open to speak and he is always open to receive us. It's not a picture of us sneaking in because we're ashamed and then hiding in a corner and then hoping we can have a quiet word about our sins or problems behind a curtain somewhere. It's also not a picture of us loitering around outside the throne room ushering others in, saying, no, no, you go in first, I'll be fine, because we're ashamed or afraid of what we've done. What it does mean is that we go to God openly and honestly and sincerely. And we also go to him confidently. Our text here says that as well as face forward, we should come boldly or confidently to the throne. What does that mean? When we read this word boldly, we might mistake from its modern meaning that maybe we can march into God's presence with the attitude, okay, I'm here now, you can forgive me. No. That's plain foolishness because we are speaking about the one and only omnipotent creator God here. God invites and expects and appreciates our honesty, but let's remember who we are speaking to. Not just a king, but the king. It will be appropriate then to show the proper respect. We don't have to resort to flowery phrases and false compliments. (laughs) I think those would be a waste for the maker of the universe. But we should also not be over-familiar or flippant. So, what does boldly really mean then? Well, the Greek word is parisia. It literally means all speech or speaking all things and thereby carries the idea of freedom to say everything in the presence of God. The Lord's sons and daughters have complete freedom of speech in the presence of God. (laughs) That's really amazing. It's really amazing. If I think about who God is, if I consider his power displayed in creation that I see so clearly, if I go and stand on top of Mount Ruapehu and look at the view, or if I go outside on a clear night and I look up at the starry sky, I have to stop and think. I'm so small. I'm so weak. So how great and marvelous God must be. Yet, He invites me to freely speak to Him, to embrace and love me, a microscopic fish in an infinite pond. And like I've said, unlike earthly kings and queens, there's no question of being careful only to say nice things about him. No. God wants to hear everything. Isn't this the complete opposite of the fear and trembling of the Jewish high priest entering the Holy of Holies? 
Surely, as the writer to the Hebrews intended, it's plain as can be that the superior glory is worth holding on to no matter what surrounds us in real life. We can speak to God now. We will speak to him in eternity. And we can speak to him about anything. Since it's hopefully clear now about being face forward and all speaking, let's talk about the throne for a bit now. Well, a throne is a place where the buck stops. We expect it to be occupied by a king or queen who has the authority and the power to make big decisions and to make them stick. Then since they do that, there is a certain amount of mana associated with both the chair and its occupant. Thrones come along with some ritual baggage. I consider this explanation of the etiquette for entering the British royal presence that I found online. And it's not from so long ago, which is quite interesting. Entering the royal presence. If you were in a castle and the king were in one of the chambers thereof, you would enter the king's presence if you entered that room. We are often in outdoor settings or in single large halls without side chambers. Therefore, we have designated the area 10 feet around the king's person as his presence. The king is in a circle with a 20-foot diameter. This is quite a large area. By law and custom, no person may enter this presence without rendering courtesy to the crown. Rendering courtesy means to acknowledge by a bow or curtsy that the person holds a position of honour. If you wish to speak to the king and he is not busy, wait just outside the presence until you are bidden to approach. You might make yourself more obvious by kneeling or bowing or curtsying. Staring is not good. If you must speak to get the king's attention, you might try, Forgive me, your majesty, but, or, Your majesty, may I approach? There may be times when you need to speak with the king and you are unable to gracefully gracefully arrange it yourself. So you might ask the herald to approach the king on your behalf to arrange a time and place and ask them to have you sent for when the king has time to hear you. Now, I hope you all remember this when you come to talk to me after the sermon. Wow. Contrast that rigmarole with the simplicity of what we read here in Scripture for approaching the king of all kings in heaven. Contrast it too with what the Hebrews would have understood about having had the rules of the temple drummed into them from an early age. Approach God on his throne by yourself boldly with confidence. Face forward at any time. They would have thought that was just... Outstanding, astounding, unreal. I reckon for the Hebrews this might have felt like we would today if a very serious person on the 6 o'clock news on TV informed us that for real, cross my heart and hope to die, Elon Musk would now include a time travel module in all his Tesla cars. It would be so radical as to be unbelievable, but so desirable if it were true. How can it be? How can these things be? They can be because this is the throne of grace. That's what it says here. If we understand anything about that grace, our freedom to speak to the Lord will not be so surprising. But to be sure we understand properly, we have to ask the question, what is grace? Well, I can tell you it isn't describing God's ability as a dancer. 
The Tyndale Bible Dictionary defines it like this. Grace is the gift of God as expressed in his actions of extending mercy, loving kindness and salvation to all people. Grace is the dimension of divine activity that enables God to confront human indifference and rebellion with an inexhaustible capacity to forgive and to bless. More simply put, it's often said as God's unmerited favour or G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace as part of God's character means that we get the very best of him even though we do not deserve it. It expresses how he floods us with his love and mercy in spite of what we have done and what we continue to do. So why would we need grace? Well, there are two reasons, and I'll start with the most important. We need to be saved. Here's a picture of why we need grace to be saved. It's odd, I'll give you that. But look carefully at the swing. What's it hanging from? It's impossible, isn't it? One can never hold the same branch that you swing from. And it's exactly the same problems for humans and sin. Because we sin, we can never have the relationship with God that we're supposed to have, and so we are disconnected from him like that branch is disconnected from anything solid. And the really bad news is that we can't do anything about that for ourselves. We can't ever hold that branch up because gravity, or in the case of our example today, sin, will always drag us down. And contrary to popular belief, no amount of good deeds makes any difference at all because the stain of sin makes even truly heroic levels of good deeds worthless in his eyes. It's like this. Even the most succulent and beautifully prepared meal becomes repulsive when we discover that somebody has spat in it. And you might find that unnecessarily graphic, but I want to be sure to make crystal clear the revulsion that God has for sin in us. If we rely only on good deeds to define our relationship with God or worse, completely reject anything to do with God, then like this fellow in the picture, we will certainly fall to the ground. Except we will die. We will be separated from God forever and receive punishment for all of the sins that we've ever committed. And it really seems like a hopeless case. But that's where grace comes in. Although God's nature absolutely requires him to punish sin without exception, he is also exceedingly gracious. Therefore, he chose to fix things for us, to secure that branch to something solid so that we can enjoy the swing. It was a really radical solution because it was a radical problem. Somehow, all of the sin done by everyone in all of time had to be paid for. Someone had to be punished. Of course, no human could ever bear such a burden because it would absolutely crush them. And so there was only one person. God sent his son, Jesus, to live as a human, to die on the cross, and to take that punishment instead of us. Instead of me, instead of you. And because he did that, and only because he did that, that debt is paid once and for all, The relationship is restored. God did that for us. 
through grace. Now our bond is restored. He can help us with our physical lives and when we die instead of separation and punishment, there is eternal life in the reward of heaven. Wonderful. Thanks, Dave. That's great. It's fully sorted and so I'm going to head off down to the pub now. But before you head for the red, you should know this isn't a one-sided thing. It's not as though it's all fixed and we can just go on living our lives as though nothing has happened. No, joining the family of God means we must take deliberate and lifelong action. The first thing we need to do to take up this offer is to repent of our sin and prayer and commit to taking Jesus as Lord as our lives from that moment on. And then we must follow him. And that means openly living according to his rules, not our own desires, and also doing the work that he gives us. If we have done these things, we can be sure that our sins are forgiven. That bond that was up there earlier in the verse on Romans will never be separated. So I say to you, if you have not already done so, Submit to him today because none of us knows what the next moment holds (laughs) and that next moment might be too late. So if that is the first reason, then it follows that there is a second. What is it? The second reason we need grace is that as surely as we need it to begin our new lives with God, we need it to continue those lives in the way that that, that that the Lord desires. We will never need grace to be saved again because God did that part perfectly, but we do need his help and strength as we go on. And this is true because becoming a Christian does not ever mean the end of life's troubles. If you hear somebody saying that to you from a pulpit, they are telling you an outrageous lie. No, terrible things still happen to Christians, but God's grace is always there in time of need to strengthen us. And even if that very worst thing happens, if we are to die, then we have nothing to fear because death only means the beginning of eternal life with God. Friends, for me, grace is the principal message of this verse. There is no limit to God's grace. We won't go to ask for it with our face forward, openly, only to find that the grace budget has been reached for the quarter and so we'll have to wait for the end of the month for a new supply. Neither will global commodity price variations have increased the cost because there's been a run on grace in Ekaterhuna. And there is nothing superior to grace. As in all things, God does grace perfectly. You can't add anything to it. There's no special or specific words or phrases to get more of it. There's no rituals or sacrifices to guarantee its delivery at a particular moment. All you have to do is go freely to the throne of grace and ask in the name of Jesus. And you can go there now and ask. Lastly, there is no barrier to grace. Grace can break through the hardest of sinful hearts and save them. Grace and grace alone. By one, there is no sin committed by a believer that cannot be covered and forgotten because of grace. Grace and grace alone. 
Friends, be encouraged. I really, I really hope that you're encouraged. This little verse is a picture of something so very, very large. It tells us that we are guaranteed to find grace when we need it. And that never, ever depends on whether we feel like it. It never, ever depends on whether we feel like we deserve it. Grace makes it possible for us to be born again into the family of God. Then grace allows us to grow. Grace allows us to enjoy. Grace enables us to endure. It is the free and unmerited gift of God. Let's not waste our time saying like the song at the beginning of the sermon. I am guilty, ashamed of what I've done, what I've become. These hands are dirty. I dare not lift them up to the Holy One. No. Say this instead. Lift your hands because they have been cleaned by God, by the blood of Christ. You plead my cause, you right my wrongs. You break my chains, you overcome, you gave your life to give me mine. You say that I am free. How can it be? How can it be? Though I fail, you can make me new from this death. I will rise to you. Oh, the grace reaching out for me. How can it be? Praise God, it is. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for Christ who made it possible for us to receive it. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that helps us to live it. Oh, Lord, I pray we we take hold of it now and live it and love it and believe it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.